0: Thanks, welcome. We've invited you here today because you have a special interest in kids who, who struggle. Um, but if I could put the day in context for you a little bit, I'd like everyone to take a moment and reflect on your childhood, if you would, and think about your three best friends in high school, your three best friends in junior high school, and your three best friends in elementary school. If you think about it, you can remember their names, you can remember their faces, you remember their parents, you can remember their homes. You can, in your mind, walk through their home. You could even, if you really try, probably remember their telephone numbers. Now, for a moment, try to imagine your childhood without those kids, without those friends, because that's what happens to kids with learning and language problems. They spend a very lonely childhood without friends. And it's very difficult for us sometimes to understand how difficult that can be for them. I go around the country reminding people that children go to school for a living, that's their job, but if you think about it, that's really only a small part of their job. Kids today only spend about 1,000 hours a year in the classroom. That's about 20% of their waking time. 80% of their time is spent on playgrounds, in ball fields, scout meetings, school buses, cafeterias, movie theaters, birthday parties, and school hallways. Those are the real battlegrounds of childhood. And those are battlegrounds where special needs kids are losing. I ran schools for special needs kids for many years, and I well remember an admissions meeting I had with a mother. She came in, she was placing her child with us. The child was in the fifth grade. And I asked the mother, what do you expect from this school? What would you like the end product of your child's stay with us to be? And she was answering all the questions, as you would expect. I wanted her to do better in math. I'd like to improve her reading skills. We need to work on our handwriting. But I could tell there was a deeper problem than that. And I said, no, if you had one wish, one thing that you'd like to happen out of her experience with us, what would it be? And at this point, the mother, who had been sort of stoic and clinical and detached, suddenly her eyes filled up with tears. And she said, Mr. Lavoie, the reason we're here is that my daughter Lindsay came home from school a week ago. And she said, Ma, we've got to find a different school. Today the teacher left the room and the kids picked me up and put me in the wastebasket and said, you're junk and that's where you belong. She said, you probably never heard this in an admissions meeting, Mr. Lavoie, but my wish for her stay here is that when she graduates, she has just one friend. Just one friend. What that mother didn't understand is probably every other admission interview I did for 30 years, that was Mom and Dad's objective. Just one friend. We have a friendship crisis in the United States today, not only with kids with learning problems that we're going to focus on today, but all kids. It's because our culture, our society has taken away from this generation of kids a number of laboratories that you and I had. Think about it. Many states have now banned recess to allow the kids more time to study for high-stakes testing. One of the southern states has passed a state mandate that says no recess allowed in elementary school. Recess was a laboratory for us. Recess was a way we learned how to negotiate, how to play back and forth. Sandlot baseball. When I was a kid playing baseball, you'd go outside, you'd find nine or ten other guys, you'd go to some empty sandlot, and you'd play ball. And we learned in that laboratory, we learned how to negotiate. We learned how to win and lose. We knew how to, how to make rules and break rules. And we'd say, you've got all the big guys, so you get, our guys get four strikes to an out. And the 57 Chevy is fouled for you, but the Dodge is the foul line for our team because all our guys bat left-handed. We, we use that as a laboratory to learn about each other. That's now been replaced with organized sports. Starting with kids at five years old, where there's always somebody with a whistle around their neck to negotiate every squabble that kids have. When I was a kid, it was go outside and play and come in when the streetlights go on. Now in many communities, mom and dad are afraid to let the kid out by himself. They're afraid to let him go out into the jungle. that's become many of our neighborhoods. And play, again, play, those outside playing until the streetlights come on has turned into play dates now. Play dates that are arranged two or three weeks ahead of time where you dropped off at somebody's house for a play date. And even those play dates, when I was a kid and when you were a kid, you go to somebody's home and you play Monopoly for the afternoon. Do you realize what you learned playing Monopoly? You learned how to win graciously, how to lose graciously, how to take turns, how to share, how to follow the rules. We learned so much at that Monopoly board. Now kids go to each other's houses, they each take a joystick on the computer, and they don't even talk to each other for hours at a time. So we have a friendship crisis not only with special needs kids, but with all kids. Now you might say, why is this so important? There's a body of research that indicates this, and I'm going to repeat this because it's very important. Good, positive social relationships are a better predictor of adult happiness than IQ or academic achievement. The number and the quality of friendships that your child has as a child or an adolescent is going to be more significant in determining his adult happiness than either his IQ or his academic standing. And we spend so much time trying to improve the kid's academic standing, standing so much time working on IQ and very little time working on social skills. Now, what we need to understand today, it's not enough to empathize with these kids, and you do need to empathize with these kids. But we also need to, we need to empower you. We need to convince you there are things you can do to deal with the social problems that these kids have. What we realize now is that learning disabilities and language disabilities are a cause and a consequence of social isolation. You see, we used to think, here's, here's what the common belief used to be. The child had learning problems. Therefore, he failed in school. And the school failure caused the social problems. So it went, the child is learning disabled. He he fails in school as a result, and the school failure causes social rejection. Now we're finding there's a direct link between the learning disabilities and the social rejection. Even if a learning disabled child is doing well in school, even if a child with learning problems is doing well in school, he may still have difficulties socially. You know, I ran a school for many years for children with learning problems, a residential school, and I was always very interested in their social development and their friendship skills. And I wanted to put together a workshop on it, write a book about it, perhaps do a video about it. But I don't know about you folks, I can't work on a project until I've come up with a title. Once I come up with a title, it almost kind of writes itself. And I couldn't come up with a title for this workshop and this book that I wanted to do. And one day the title came to me from the mouths of babes, listen to the children and they will tell you. I was in my office one day and these two girls got set up to my office, Kathy and Jen. Now Kathy and Jen were two 13-year-old girls. They had learning problems, academic problems, social problems. They attended the school where I was working. They were great kids and they really wanted to be friends, but they just didn't have the social skills to make that happen. And so their friendship was characterized with skirmishes and fights back and forth. And I always find myself refereeing between the two of them. And one day I was sitting in my office and they were sent up to my office again for me to referee their latest skirmish in the playground. And I, they sat down in front of me and I said, okay, tell me what happened. Now, Kathy was this really demanding, rather difficult kid. Good kid, but a very demanding and difficult kid. Jen, her wannabe friend, was just a sweet, sweet, very passive kid. So I said to the two of them, what happened here? What went on? And Kathy started. Kathy started on Jen. You said you'd be my friend, but I caught you talking to Sally, and if you're going to be Sally's friend, you can't be my friend because I don't like Sally, and you told me you'd play volleyball with me, and I caught you playing volleyball with somebody else. If you're going to be my friend, you can't be anybody else's friend, and she was all over Jen. And Jen looked at her and shook her head and said, I'll never forget how profound it was. She looked at Kathy and she said, Kathy, it's so much work to be your friend. It's so much work to be your friend, and that's the book and that's the workshop. It's so much work to be your friend because it's not supposed to be work. It's supposed to be fun. It's supposed to be fun, but friendship isn't fun for these kids. They're difficult to be friends with and it's difficult for them to establish and maintain friendships. The research on this is very, very clear. Kids with learning disabilities, according to the research, are more likely to act inappropriately in public. They're less able to solve social problems, they're more likely to be rejected and isolated by their peers. They're more likely to overreact to minor social problems. And they're less likely to become involved in community, community activities. We all know that. That's been established a while ago. But some exciting research has come down the pike recently, particularly from Mel Levine at the University of North Carolina. What he has done is he's broken down social skills into individual observable skills, just like we've done with reading. A generation ago, we used to say, this child's not a good reader. Well, that doesn't tell you anything. Now what we've done is taken the reading process and broken it down so I can say, this child has diff- difficulty with phonemic awareness, this child has difficulty with word selection, that child has difficulty with vocabulary. And we've taken the skill of reading and broken it down because we know that's the only effective way to teach it. Well, what Levine and his people have done is they've also broken down social skills. So instead of saying the child just has poor social skills, we now can identify those subskills, and we know how to work with that child. And let's talk about some of the most important subskills that are difficult for our kids. The first is crucial, and that is what's called timing and staging. Timing and staging. The problem with many kids with social problems is that they view friendship not as a process but as a product. They don't understand that friendships need to develop, that somebody's not going to be your friend just because they sit on the school bus with you, just because you want them to be your friend, that it's a process that needs to evolve. An example would be Bobby, a new kid, moves into the neighborhood. So he's the new kid in the neighborhood, the well-socialized child, the the child with good social skills, waits until he sees Bobby standing in the driveway and then swings by on his bicycle and says, Hi, my name is Mike. What's your name? Nice to meet you, Bobby. Where are you going to go to school? Oh, Kennedy Junior High, that's where I go to school. Maybe I'll see you in class someday. You know, some days on Saturdays, Bobby, I take my bike over to the mall. Maybe someday we can do that together. Take care. Nice talking to you. And he leaves. In other words, he begins the process. As a well-socialized kid, he knows this is the beginning of a process. Maybe, Michael will be my, maybe Bobby will be my friend, and maybe he won't. But it's going to be the beginning of a process. Our kids see friendship. Kids with special needs see it as a product. So Bobby, the new kid, moves in next door. The special need kids run across, runs across the door, bangs in the door. Hi, my name is Billy. Nice to meet you, Bobby. You're going to be my best friend. I'm going to be your best friend. You can sleep over my house tonight. You're going to have dinner at my house tomorrow night. I'll sleep at your house on Sunday. My family goes to Walt Disney World over Christmas. You can come with me. I'll marry your sister. You can marry my sister. And, of course, what Bobby says is, whoa, wait a second. This is much too fast. This is much too fast. And the friendship just moves too quickly. Kids don't understand. Kids with social skill problems don't understand. It's a process. There was a young boy I worked with named Brian who desperately wanted to go to the public high school. He was in a special school. He desperately wanted to go to the public high school. And we worked and worked and worked with this kid, and he finally was able to go to the public high school. His first day in the public high school, he called me that evening. Mr. Lavoie, they broke my nose. They broke my nose. I said, Brian, what happened? He said, I was just trying to be like everybody else, Mr. LaVoy. We went to gym, and after gym, we were in the locker room. And one boy said to another boy, boy, do you stink? And I said, yeah, boy, you do stink. And the kid punched me in the nose. Well, of course, what Brian didn't understand is the first two boys had been friends for five years. You can take those liberties with someone you've known for five years. The new kid in school can't tell another kid he stinks, not without getting a broken nose. You see, he didn't understand it was a process. And this becomes more and more important. One of the things we're gonna talk about is children with social skill problems become adults with social skill problems. And as we talk about some of the symptoms of this, you're gonna realize you recognize some people at work, 25, 35, 45 years old, who continue to have the same problems establishing friendships and establishing relationships. And this, is, this timing and staging is very important because what we find is we have a tremendous amount of difficulty with girls with learning disabilities, particularly with promiscuity. Because it's sort of, you know, hello, I love you, will you tell me your name? Basically, they don't understand that that a a romantic relationship is a process. You don't begin with the sexual act. That's something that may or may not come later. And our our girls many times don't understand that. And they find themselves in very uh, compromising positions as adolescents. The school that I ran, we had a a high school program. And across the street was a post-secondary program. A college prep program for kids who had graduated from the high school. And we found that the older kids in the post-secondary program were spending too much time with the high school kids. So we sent out a memo and we said, let's not allow them to spend so much time together. As soon as the memo went out, there's a knock on my door. I open the door and Sally is there, a junior at the high school. Tears streaming down her face. Mr. Lavoie, I can't believe you're not going to let us hang out with the post-secondary kids anymore. Alan's over there and Alan's my boyfriend. I love Alan. Alan and I, a boyfriend and girlfriend, we're going to get married. We've even picked out the names for our kids. We're going to have three kids, two boys and a girl. We've even picked out their names, and we're going to buy a puppy together. I love him, and he loves me, and you can't keep us apart. It's just not fair. It's just like Romeo and Juliet. It's just not fair. And I said, honey, I'm sorry. I didn't know you had a relationship with Alan. I didn't know this relationship existed. We can work something out. Something will work out. Now, there's a couple of boys named Alan in that program. Which one is he? She said, well, he wears glasses and he's got kind of red hair. She literally didn't know his last name. And I said, why don't you get the last name down before we start ordering wedding invitations? She literally didn't know his last name, and yet they had talked about all these plans about getting married. They had known each other for three days. So this timing and staging thing, it can be entertaining sometimes, but it also can find the child can get in great difficulty because he expects the relationship to move too quickly. Another problem our kids have is something called affective matching. One of the social requirements you have as a social person is you need to match your affect with the people who are with you. If everyone you're with is sad, you should be sad. If everyone's happy, you should be happy. And if you laugh at a funeral, you look strange to everyone. I remember when I was working at the school, I had applied for a grant that everyone said, you're not going to get this grant. There's no way you're going to get this grant. It's too big a grant. You've applied for too much. One day I'm sitting in my office, the phone call came, I got the grant. We got the grant. Enough to build a new building. I was one of the high points of my career, I couldn't wait, couldn't wait to go tell my wife. Janet and I have worked in the same school, in the same office for over thirty years. My first thought was go find Janet and tell her we got the grant. I went running downstairs to her office. She wasn't in her office. I said to her secretary, Where's Janet? She said, Somebody said she's in the dining hall. I went running to the dining hall at three o'clock in the afternoon. The dining hall is empty. I ran into the dining hall. There's only three people in the dining hall, Janet and two teachers, and the three of them are sitting together at a table. Now, one of the teachers is sitting between the second teacher and Janet, and Janet and the second teacher have their arm around the third teacher, and the third teacher is obviously crying. I ran into the room, excited about the grant. As soon as I saw them, my social requirement was to do what? Match their affect. Obviously, there was a problem. Obviously, something was wrong. So instead of running in and saying, guess what, I got the grant, I went over and I said, what's the matter? What's the problem? And they said, well, Helen just got a phone call. A relative of hers died very suddenly. And I said, Helen, why don't you go home? Don't worry. We'll take care of your classes. Why don't you give her a ride home? Get her home. Please take care of yourself. We'll be thinking of you. And Janet, when you get a minute, give me a call. How many of your kids would have just run in announcing the grant? The inability to match affect, and we're going to talk in a little bit later about why they can't do that. They also have difficulty with social memory. We know they have memory problems in math and science. Why shouldn't we think they have memory problems for social situations as well? They forget that grandma doesn't like you to pat the white cat. They forget that grandpa doesn't like you to water his plants. And how many times do you say to the kid, "Um, don't you remember? No, they don't. Don't you remember the last time that happened? No, they don't. And as a result, they don't learn from past experience and they make the same social mistakes over and over and over again. They also have difficulty with social prediction. Social prediction, if I stand up here right now and tell an off color joke, I know that would offend some people in the audience. So I'm not going to do it. I can predict that it would be a consequence for that social behavior. Our kids can't do that. Kids with social skill problems can't do that. They can't predict how their behavior is going to be accepted. We are here at Simmons College in the shadow of historic Fenway Park. I remember taking a group of kids to a ball game at Fenway one time. And it was a day game, and there were a lot of kids who would cut school from here the city of Boston to attend the game, and it was a pretty rough crowd. One of our kids walked into the men's room, and of course all the kids were in there smoking, walked into the men's room and announced, please put out your cigarettes, the smoke is hurting my eyes, with no idea how to predict what the response of those kids would be. Well, when we pulled him out of the urinal, which is where we found him, it was pretty easy for us to understand and predict what the response of those other kids would be, but this kid was totally unable to do it. The other thing we look at is what's called social relevance. Whenever you're involved in a situation, you look at three things, the people, the place, and the purpose. And everything you do in a situation is based on your understanding of the people involved in that situation, the place that you are, and the purpose. If one of the people working in the college today were to suddenly come through this side door, as soon as he stepped out, he'd look, he'd say, look, there's big lights up, there's a camera, there's a guy up here in a suit pontificating about something, there's a group of people looking up at him, this is a meeting, and he'd step out right away. He'd be able to read the people, the place, and the purpose immediately and respond to it. How many of your kids would walk right in? We had a tragedy at our school a number of years ago where one of our fathers died very suddenly. And he was beloved, the, other, the kids loved him, the staff loved him, he was just a wonderful, wonderful guy. And so we took all of the students to his funeral. And it was a big funeral, or 500 people at the funeral. And the man was of the Jewish faith. And there's a beautiful ceremony in the Jewish faith where after they lower the casket into the ground, the wife takes a spade of dirt and throws it onto the casket. And then takes the shovel and passes it to the oldest son, and he puts a spade of dirt and passes it down through the family. So there was this beautiful, beautiful family moment where his wife of 40 years, his beloved wife, took a shovel full of dirt, took it and dropped it down in the grave, and turned to her older son. At that point, three of our kids, special needs kids, broke ranks from the people who were watching, ran across the field, took the wife, and hugged her. Adorable? Yes. Lovable? Yes. Affectionate? Yes. Appropriate? No. It was so inappropriate. But you see, they were unable to read that room. They were unable to understand. That was a family moment. They didn't do what I did. I didn't happen to, had never attended a Jewish funeral. So what I did is I watched everybody else. And I stood when they stood and sat when they sat and talked to the family when other people talked to the family. But our kids are not able to do that. So there's this whole list of very identifiable, observable social skills our kids have difficulty with. But probably the most important one, and I think the most valuable one, is work being done at Emory University in Atlanta on what are called paralinguistics. Paralinguistics. Paralinguistics is basically nonverbal language. Nonverbal language. This might surprise you, but when we communicate with each other, only about 7% of that communication consists of words. 93% of the communication consists of gestures, facial expressions, posture, and tone of voice. For example, if at the end of this presentation I went like this, boy, I had a great time with you guys today, what did the word say? What did the word say? The word said, I had a great time with you today. Is that what I meant? No. My body language, my tone of voice, put my hands on my hip, shifted all my weight to one foot, kind of scanned the audience, little sarcastic look on my face, and said, boy, I had a great time with you guys, completely changed that message. And what we're finding is our kids don't understand nonverbal language. They don't understand gestures. They don't understand a tone of voice. They don't understand what we're going to talk about, proxemics, how close you stand to people. And as a result, when they communicate socially, they're missing about 93% of the message. Now, here's the problem. If a person makes a verbal communication error, you doubt his intellectual ability. If he makes a verbal communication error, you doubt his intellectual ability. If I get on a plane... And some gentleman comes and sits next to me and looks around and says, boy, I ain't never seen nothing like this before. I think, oh, great, this is going to be a long plane trip. I'm going to make the assumption, because he butchered the English language, I'm going to make the assumption that he's not very bright. When people make verbal communication errors, you doubt their intellectual ability. However, when they make nonverbal communication errors, you doubt their mental stability. If that same man were to come and sit next to me, put his arm around me, pull me real close and talk loudly into my face, even if he was delivering a good message, I'd think, wait, I want to change my seat. I don't think this guy's not very bright. I think he's dangerous. Why is he putting his arm around me? Why is he pulling me so close? Why is he talking so loudly into my face? So when a child makes verbal communication errors, people will doubt their intellectual ability. When they make nonverbal errors, they doubt their mental stability. Now, there are four areas of nonverbal language. Kinesics, proxemics, vocalics, and artifactual systems. Now that sounds very complicated, but as soon as I start talking about it, you're gonna think I've been looking in your kitchen window. Kinesics is the use of our body to communicate. We communicate a great deal by our body, by just the way we hold our body. We had some people over for dinner a couple of weeks ago and I began talking about something that I had forgotten was sort of a sensitive issue to this couple. My wife got up from the table, walked behind the couple so they couldn't see her, and went like this to me, okay? She didn't have to say anything, but that one gesture, that nonverbal language communicated a great deal to me. If, if I were to say uh, to Alan here, I'll be there tomorrow, and make this, basically I'm promise, I cross my heart, I'll be there tomorrow, that gesture adds a great deal. If I say, I went to a restaurant across the street, Alan, and he said, how was it? And I went like this, without saying anything, I've told him it's so-so. And when I'm at the restaurant, if I want my check, and the waiter is across the room and I'm in a hurry, I'll go like this. And that sends him the message that basically I want my check. We communicate a great deal by gestures. I mean, think about it, the Muppets. Two generations of American kids love the Muppets. They have no facial expressions. They're basically, they're communicating just by using gestures. And yet we feel we know Grover and we know the Muppets, and we think they've got a personality, but they don't have any facial expressions. It's all done by hand. If you don't think that gestures are important, ask George Bush, the first President Bush, Herbert Walker Bush. Ask him, do you realize he was a one-term president? And do you realize that historians now say the reason he was a one-term president was because of Knesset? Let me tell you what happened. Some of you will remember this. He was leading in the polls in 1992. He was leading both Ross Perot and Bill Clinton by a sizable margin. And then they had their first presidential debate. Does anybody remember what he did at that debate? Several times? Yes, exactly. He looked at his watch. Several times during the debate, he looked at his watch. And the American people were very offended by that. He said nothing wrong, but the message he was sending is, this isn't worth my time. I've got better things to do. And many people in the American public said, wait a moment, Mr. President, if it's worth our time to watch you, it's you're worth your time to tell us what your plans are for a second term. And interestingly, the people who watched the debate on television gave it overwhelmingly to Clinton. People who listened to it on the radio and didn't see him looking at the watch gave the debate to Bush. So we communicate a great deal by our gestures. I remember watching a kid one time I was in class, and there was a little boy in class about seven years old, and he had the, he's sitting in the front row, and he had this little toy, little toy truck, and he's running it up and down the desk, and it's making this obnoxious, screeching sound, and the teacher stared at him, glared at him, moved in like this, put one hand on her hip, tapped her foot, moved in closer, and he's just looking at her, running the toy up and down, the, making this horrible noise. Finally, she said, "I told you four times to put that away." She never told him once. She sent all these nonverbal signals to him. All the other kids picked up on them. All the other kids are thinking, why doesn't he put it away? She obviously is angry. Don't you find they never know when you're angry? They never know when you're upset because they can't read your body language. The consequences of this is, I like to say, kids with kinesics problems live in an email world. You know, sometimes the, 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 the downside of email is you can't, Get the emotion out of it. It's just a printed page. And many times, my wife and I have worked together, as I said, for 30 years, and many times she'll read an email and she'll say, gee, this person was upset. And I'll read it and I'll say, I don't think the person's upset because there's no body language and you have to go just by the printed word. Our kids kind of live in an email world because they don't understand the gestures that accompany language. They don't really get the meaning from language many times and so they make tremendous social mistakes. You know a solution for this? Raise your hand if you think you've got kids who have kinesics problems. Yeah, you bet you do. You know what a solution is? Soap operas. Soap operas. And I'll tell you why. The reason I recommend soap operas are two reasons. One is, in soap operas, if you watch those afternoon soaps, in soap operas, every character in it is at one end of the emotional spectrum of the other. I mean, they're either deliriously happy or morbidly sad. Nobody's ever going shopping. I mean, you know, every character in it is at one extreme emotion or another. And plus, these soap operas tend to use young actors and actresses. And so they emote. There's a lot of gestures, a lot of. That's why I recommend soap operas. And here's what you do take the soap opera. Take the soap opera and show it to the child with the sound turned off. And see if they can determine just by the body language what the relationship is between the characters. Remember the girl I told you about that the other kids put in the wastebasket? Well she ended up being a student of ours and she had tremendous kinesics problems. And I remember sitting down with her and showing her a clip from a soap opera. And in this particular clip there was a woman, very small petite woman in a tailored business suit, and she was sitting behind this very feminine French, French provincial desk. And she's working at her desk. Suddenly the door bursts open and in charges this guy who's really not dressed for the office. He had like a t-shirt on, kind of a day's growth of beard. He really wasn't dressed to be at the office. And he goes charging over to her desk and starts banging his fist in the desk and waving his finger into her face. Now again, Lindsay is watching this with all the sound turned off. At this point, through the open door comes the secretary with a steno pad and she runs in between the man and the desk and she kind of pushes the man out out the office and as the man is backing out he's continuing to point at the woman behind the desk like this in a threatening way the secretary pushes him out of the office closes the door locks the door then runs over to the woman and hugs the woman who now is crying I showed that to Lindsay at this point she was 10 years old I showed that to Lindsay with the sound turned off and I said Lindsay what do you think the relationship is between the man and the woman She said, they're probably either really good friends or members of the same family. And I said, honey, why would you think that? Why would you think that? What gave you that clue? She said, well, my mom's got an office like that, and whenever anybody comes to see my mom, you have to be introduced by the secretary. The secretary has to go in first and announce you. But if you're a member of the family or a close friend, you can go right in. And I remember thinking, how do you get through a day? How do you survive socially? She missed the anger. She missed the fear. She missed all of those emotions. In that. She missed all of that body language. The only social thing she connected was the fact that she remembers that her mom's office, the secretary, needs to go in first. How does she survive? You're going to find that our kids have a great deal of difficulty determining those emotions. And I'll tell you one thing. Girls are better at it than boys. And you know what? Women are better at it than men. You know, we never know when you're angry. You know, could it be something I did, you know? And uh, <laughs> Jan and I will be at an airport, and she'll look at a couple of hundred yards away, and she'll say, oh, they had a fight this morning. And I think, how do you know that? But she's always right. You're going to find that boys have tremendous difficulty with kinesics. The second area is proxemics. Proxemics is the use of space to communicate. You communicate a great deal by the space that we keep between us. Now, interestingly enough, as a, the human animal is fascinated with other animals, and we say, oh, wow, animals are so territorial. They're always blocking off their territorial space. Animals are so territorial. The human being is the most territorial animal on the planet. I mean, we build fences, we build, we build walls, we build uh, uh, hedges to separate us. I remember my son coming to in, coming in me one time, he was 12 years old, and he said, Dad, some man just walked across our lawn. Some 180-pound man walked across our lawn in the great Mandela. What difference does that make? But basically, we are very territorial. I mean, you know, you you get on a plane. You drop the tray table down in front of you. That's your tray table. Don't you put anything on that. That's my tray table. Imagine if some person next to you finishes his drink and puts his drink on your tray table. That's my tray table. Well, in fact, it's not yours. It belongs to the airline. But for that period of time, that's your table. You go to a restaurant, that's your table. We're very territorial, and not only are we territorial, we're the only animal who carries that territoriality around with us. It's like we have this big invisible hula hoop, and we walk around, and basically we say to each other, don't come into my space unless you've got business to transact. Don't come into my space unless you've got business to transact. That's why I think we all become blithering fools in elevators. Because you're standing in an elevator, you've got people standing in your personal space, you've got no business to transact with them, so we all look at the numbers like that's going to help, and we can't wait to get out of the elevator because we've got people in our space and they have no business to transact. There are basically four kinds of space that we use. Public space, social space, personal space, and intimate space. And it's important that you understand the hidden curriculum of these spaces because if you use the wrong space at the wrong time, your behavior can be misinterpreted. Let me demonstrate this. If we could, Laura, if you could come up here, please, and stand over there by the desk. The four, a little bit closer to the edge, if you could, right on the, along the edge. The four kinds of space we use are public space, social space, personal space, and intimate space. And let me show you the difference between between them. Public space, it would be I use in a scenario. It's nine o'clock at night. It's dark. Um, uh, I'm walking down the street of a town, and Laurie's coming my way. We don't know each other. I'm going to respect her public space. I'm going to give her about four feet between us, and she's going to walk my way, and I'm going to walk this way and keep about four feet between us. Okay? Now, suppose it's 9 o'clock at night. She's walking my way. I come walking toward her about four feet between us, and suddenly I start See what she did? She automatically started moving away because there was no reason for me to get any closer than that. Okay? Now, because she's a woman and I'm a guy, there's a couple other things we're going to do. If you could stand near the edge of walk toward me again, a couple other things I'm going to do. As we walk toward each other, I'm probably going to make quick eye contact, break it, maybe even smile, and continue on my way. What social message, message did I send her? I'm not going to hurt you. You're safe. I'm going to make quick eye contact, even smile, and then break it. That tells her that she's safe. Now, it wouldn't be appropriate to make this kind of eye contact come my way and go like this. That wouldn't be appropriate. Okay, that's sending a whole different message. It also wouldn't be appropriate to go like this, come my way, Laurie, and make no eye contact at all. Okay, so that's public space, about four feet. Social space is the next kind of space. Social space is I want to have a social interaction with her. I'm new in town, and I'm looking for directions to the library. I don't know how to get to the library. I want to have a social interaction with her. In this particular case now, we'd come, we'd walk toward each other, about four feet, I would make eye contact, move a little bit closer, and about three feet, I'd say, excuse me, could you please tell me where the library is? It wouldn't be appropriate to touch her in any way, but social space is basically, I'm going to have an interaction with you, but no touching. All right, back down there again, Laurie. The next is personal space. I'm in town to do a workshop. Laurie's in my audience that day. Um, She uh, hears me speak and she's walking down the street that evening, she sees me, I recognize her, she recognizes me. We walk down, she says, oh, hi, Rick, how are you? Oh, hi, nice to see you. Shake her hand okay, even okay to put one hand over another, shake her hand, then break it and have our conversation. Wouldn't be appropriate to hold her hand during the whole conversation, different message, okay? Shake hands, break it, and then go back to social space and have our conversation. The last kind of space, go back down there if you would, is intimate space. Laurie was in a graduate class of mine three or four years ago. We haven't seen each other for several years. I'm walking down the street. I see Laurie. Laurie, hey, how are you? Okay, boom, hug, break, social space. Okay? Now, these spaces are critically important. And our culture dictates when you use these spaces. And once you become aware of this, a very interesting thing happened to me one time. Is you could turn around, let me show you something, Laurie, how cultural this is, how social this is. I had one of, our, one of our kids was a little baby, and I was holding the baby in my arm like this, and I was standing in line at a supermarket. And the woman in front of me dropped something on the ground. Now, I had a baby in an armful of groceries, so I couldn't bend over it and pick it up. And she had headphones on, so I couldn't say, excuse me, you dropped something. I had to get her attention. Isn't it interesting culturally, there's only one place I could touch her. Where? Right. Right there. That's it. That's it. And I touched the there, and she turned around, and I pointed the thing in the ground. If I touched her arm, if I touched her head, if I touched her anywhere else, it would have been considered very inappropriate. You see, in the rules, thank you, Laura, very much. The rules are very complicated. I remember being in my office one day, and it had been a very, very busy week. It was a Friday, and I was leaving my office, and I had been so busy, I hadn't had a chance to really talk to my secretary. And as I'm leaving the office, I said, goodbye, Monica, take care, have a good weekend. And she said, goodbye, Rick, take care. And we went on our way. Now, she didn't know it, but I was going on a flight. I was going up to Logan Airport to fly someplace that afternoon. So I drove up to Logan. I'm walking down the concourse at Logan, and who would I see coming my way but Monica? I didn't realize she was traveling that weekend, too. We'd only seen each other two hours before. we see each other in the airport. Hey, how are you? Great big hug. Now, think about it. It wouldn't have been appropriate to hug her when I left work. But at the airport, it was Okay because it was an element of surprise, and because we were in an airport, suddenly hug. You see, the rules are fairly complicated. So there are these four kinds of spaces that we use. And what we're finding is that, that our kids don't understand these spaces. And by the way, these are very, very cultural. The work at Emory University has shown, listen to this, they, they videotaped, without, without being known they were videotaped, they videotaped two American businessmen at a business luncheon, two French businessmen in Paris, and two Puerto Rican businessmen in San Juan. These two gentlemen having a business meeting, and they didn't know they were being observed. The American men, the two American businessmen, how many times did they touch each other during the meal? Think about it. Twice. Shook hands at the beginning, shook hands at the end. The two French businessmen in Paris, 110 times. 110 times one of them reached out and touched the other man. And in Puerto Rico and in San Juan, 180 times. You see, we are a culture that doesn't like to touch as much as other cultures do. And when you find a child not only has a learning problem, but might come from another culture into your school, then it's a double whammy for that child. And, you know, the whole idea of proxemics in space, it's important, but we're beginning to realize how critically important it is. I have two pieces of very bad news for you, if you have kids with proxemics problems, that we need to consider and understand. For years I've been concerned that kids with proxemics problems are very vulnerable to what? What? Think about it. Right, molestation, molestation. If they don't understand these faces, they don't don't understand that it's not appropriate for Uncle Bill to rub your thigh every time he takes you out for ice cream. And it's not appropriate, but our kids don't get it. You know, we tell kids to prevent molestation. If you get that funny feeling in your stomach, report it to somebody. Our kids might not get their fun, that funny feeling because they don't understand these spaces. So they don't understand when someone's being inappropriate with them. But here's the real bad news. Some recent research done up in Canada has shown that not only are our kids with social problems more likely to be molested, they're also more likely to be molesters. Because think about it, what most people don't know about molestation is that most children who are molested in this country are molested not by adults, but by older teenagers. The 17 and 18-year-old molesting the 10-year-old cousin. Well, what we're finding is many, many, maybe the majority of, of older teens arrested for molestation and charged with molestation are kids with language and learning and social problems because basically they don't understand that when they were 10 years old, when they were a 10-year-old boy, it was completely appropriate to tickle wrestle with a 3-year-old female cousin and to watch her in the bathtub and to pat her on the butt. Because you're 10 and she's 3, but now you're 17 and she's 10. You can't do that anymore. You can't do that anymore. And so we're finding that kids who don't understand proxemics, it's a, it's a clarion call to teach these spaces to kids because they're more likely to be molested and more likely to get involved unintentionally in molestation. So we need to understand proxemics. We need to understand the concept of vocalics. Vocalics means the tone of voice, how tone of voice can change something that we say. You know, the American public is fascinated with the Chinese language, Asian languages, because in Asian languages, there's a big deal about what they call tonation. That if you say a word loudly, it means one thing. If you say it softly, it means something else. The word ta, In a Chinese uh, dialect, the word ta means tomorrow, and it also means Thursday. Same word. And if you mean Thursday, you say it softly. If you mean tomorrow, you say it loudly. And we say, oh, isn't that complicated? no, No more complicated than the English language is. Tonation is a huge part of the English language. Let me show you what I mean. Suppose I said to Alan over here, suppose I was talking to Alan, and I said to Alan, my son didn't break the window. My son didn't break the window. Saying each word at the same level of loudness, the same tone. Have I accused anybody else of doing it? No. Am I saying who I think did it? No. I'm just saying clearly my son didn't break the window. Now I'm going to say that same sentence five times to Alan, and every time I say it, I'm going to say one word louder than the others, and you're going to find it completely changes the meaning of that sentence. What if I said to Alan, my son didn't break the window? Whose son did, by implication? His by saying the word my louder, the implication is that his did. What if I said my son didn't break the window? Now who did? My daughter, who's not even in the story, not even in the sentence. But by emphasizing the word son, my son didn't break the window, the implication is that my daughter did. If I say my son didn't break the window, means adamantly he didn't break it. If I said my son didn't break the window, he cracked it, but he didn't break it. And if I, said my, if I say my son didn't break the window means he broke the door and not the window. By saying one word louder than the other, you've completely changed the meaning of that sentence. Do you think for one minute the kids with language problems get that, understand those subtleties? If you, don't believe, if you don't believe that vocalics are important, ask Howard Dean. If you remember a few years ago, after the Iowa caucus, he basically gave what's come to be known as the I Have a Scream speech, and his entire candidacy fell apart. Now, I'm going to quote for you right now what our friend Howard Dean said that day. What he said was simply this. We're going to California and Texas and New York and South Dakota and Oregon and then to Washington and Michigan and then we're going to Washington, D.C. and we're going to take back the White House. There was nothing wrong with what he said, but the way that he said it made people wonder if he was really the person they wanted sitting in the Oval Office and it destroyed his candidacy. That one 25-word passage, the way that he said it, the vocalics he used, or what sunk his candidacy. So what we find is, from a social point of view, kids who don't understand vocalics, they don't understand sarcasm. They don't understand when you're being sarcastic. But very importantly, they also don't understand when they are being sarcastic. So a teacher will say to a child, I want you to listen to me. And the kid says, I'm listening to you. The teacher says, don't you talk to me that way. Go see the principal. He goes on to the principal. The principal says, what are you doing here? He says, I don't know. I told her I was listening to her. She threw me out of class. Because to the kid, he can't tell the difference between I'm listening to you and I'm listening to you. I I have a phrase I picked up in college I had to get rid of when I started working with special needs kids. When somebody's telling me a story that's outrageous or off the wall, I'll say, um, uh, in the middle of the story, I'll say, oh, stop it. I don't do that anymore. I have ended more conversations with special needs kids. A kid will be telling me a story and in the middle of it, I'll say, oh, stop it. The kid goes, okay, You know, no, no idea the difference between stop it and stop it, no idea. So the last thing we need to talk about in terms of paralinguistics is what we call artifactual systems. Artifactual systems are the way we communicate through our clothing and through our accessories. The way we dress communicates a great deal from a social point of view. I have a good friend who's a Roman Catholic nun, and I love going places with her. As soon as she walks into the room, the behavior of everyone in the room changes. She doesn't need to say a word, but just by virtue of the fact she's dressed in a habit, the behavior of everyone around around her changes. Because we communicate so much by the way that we dress. Now think about it. I look around the room right now. You need to understand when you got dressed this morning, without really thinking about it too much, you got dressed this morning and you considered... Four or five different things. First of all, you considered the weather. It's a nice day out there. I see people with light sweaters on and things, but I don't see anybody with heavy muck locks or umbrellas. There was no rain predicted today. Nobody brought raincoats or umbrellas. You got dressed according to the weather. You got dressed according to your activity. Now, I'd like you to look at my friend John over here. John, would you mind standing up for a moment? Look at the way John came dressed to this workshop today. Look at the way I came dressed to the workshop today. Are we dressed the same way? No. Are we dressed appropriately? Yeah. Yeah, John dressed very appropriately. He's attending a lecture. So he came in an open collar shirt and rolled up sleeves. That's very appropriate. He's dressed appropriately for his activity. I'm dressed appropriately for my activity. If I would have shown up today in rolled up sleeves and an open collar shirt. You might think, gee, it's kind of strange. He's doing a television program here and he's lecturing dressed in an open collar shirt. Conversely, if John came dressed in a suit, you might wonder why i would wear a suit to something like this. So what you wore today might not be what you'd wear to, to a wake or to a funeral or to a wedding. It's also not what you'd wear to softball practice. You get dressed according to your activity. You get dressed according to your comfort. You think, you know, I'm going to be sitting down today all day. I wear those loose pants instead of the tight ones. You dress according to style and age and gender, what you're wearing today. You might not have worn last year. I don't see anybody with, you know, with MTV t-shirts on. You know, it's kind of a, uh, we're a little bit old for that kind of thing. You dress according to age and your gender. Do you think for one moment our kids understand that? Do you think for one moment they understand the messages they send by the way they dress? At the school I used to run, we got so tired of chasing kids back up to the dormitory. Kids who come down in the middle of winter with no coat on, or conversely, kids who come down in the summer with a big heavy coat on, we finally put a flagpole in the middle of the campus and every morning, The president of the senior class would get up, read the weather, and run two flags up the flagpole. The top flag told the kids what the temperature range was going to be that day. The second flag talked about whatever precipitation was going to be. Every kid had a little key next to his window. He could look out, see the flags, look on the key. Temperature's going to be in the 40s, and it's going to snow. I better wear a coat. We got so tired of chasing the kids back up to the dorm. They just don't get it. And clothing is so important for kids, particularly adolescents. 50% of the people in the United States arrested for shoplifting are teenagers, and 80% of what they steal are clothes. Clothes are extraordinarily important, and our kids don't get it. As a result of all these social problems, our kids, these social difficulties, our kids have difficulty with what we call social contracts. As we're doing this program, it's now late morning. You probably have been through two or three hundred social contracts already today and by the end of the day you'll go through another five hundred. You go through hundreds of social contracts a day and our kids don't get it. Let me tell you what a social contract is. You stopped to get coffee this morning before you came here. You walk into the coffee shop, there are four people standing in line to get coffee. You don't know them, you'll never meet them again, you couldn't pick them out of a lineup. But you have a social contract with those folks, don't you? What's your social contract? What are you expected to do? Right, get at the end of the line. Certainly wouldn't be appropriate to cut in the line. You get at the end of the line. Now you're at the end of the line and four or five people have come in behind you. Now you have a social contract with them. What's your social contract with the people behind you? Three things. What do you do? Right, move up. As the crowd moves up, you move up. You pick what you want off the menu. Doesn't it make you a little bit crazy when you're standing behind someone for five minutes, they finally get up to the counter and they say, let me see what I'll have. Come on. You're supposed to, while you're in line, decide what you want. And what's the third thing you do? Right. Get your money ready. Get your money ready. Again, doesn't it make you crazy? You're in line for five minutes with somebody, Someone they finally get their order and they start looking for the money. What, you thought it was free coffee day today? You didn't think you were going to have to pay? Those are your social expectations. And you go through hundreds of those every day. Once you you become aware of... Now, it's more than manners. It's much more than manners. Once you become aware of these social contracts, you begin to realize how many of them you go through in a day. Um, I was speaking at a hotel in San Francisco recently, and I was staying on the second floor. And I woke up in the morning and I thought, I think I'll go use use the, uh, the, the gym, I'll go use the fitness center up on the eighth floor. So I got in the elevator, pressed the button, went up to the fitness center, used the treadmill for a while, came back and got back in the elevator and pressed the button for the second floor. The elevator dropped from the eighth floor to the fifth floor, and the the elevator stopped, and the door opened up, and a woman was getting on the elevator. I don't know her. I'd never met her. I don't know her name. If she walked in this room, I wouldn't recognize her, but I had a social contract with her. For the time we were on that elevator, I had a social contract with her, didn't I? Now, she was leaving for the day, so she had a great deal of luggage with her, and she was kind of struggling to get the luggage on. What was my social contract? Right. Hold the door. I mean, at least hold the door. I mean, could you imagine me standing back watching the door close on her? Ooh, boy, that must have hurt, you know. <laughs> That's going to leave a scar. That is. No, of course you hold the door. Now, I held the door for her, and she was really having trouble with her luggage, so I reached out, and I helped her pull the luggage in the elevator, part of my social contract. Now, did I do that because she was a woman? No, I do it for a guy, too. He's struggling with the luggage. Now she brings the luggage in. She's standing here. The luggage is here, and I'm standing in front of the control panel. And she turned to me and she said, lobby, was that appropriate for her? Was that socially appropriate for her to give me, a total stranger, a direction like that, was it? Sure it was, on an elevator. In fact, it would have been rude for her to reach in front of me and press the button. It was very appropriate for her to give me a direct instruction. Now, interestingly, if we had gone down to the, first, to the lobby together and the door opened and we both walked off the elevator and she dropped her scarf and she turned to me and she said, pick that up. What do you mean, pick that up? Down in the lobby, it would have been inappropriate for her to give me. You see how complicated it is? It's really much more than manners. It's it's the social contract. My friend John, who's in the audience with us today, did a lot of work with our high school students who were attending the local community college. And we heard from one of the deans that our kids were just standing out. They weren't acting like everybody else was. And so John went to observe them, and he videotaped them without them knowing they were being videotaped. And there's this one videotape that's absolutely amazing. It happens at a candy machine in the lobby of the college. And there's this boy, he's 18 years old, his name is Michael, you would love him, a great, great kid, 18 years old, great big kid, sweet, sweet kid, and he goes up to the candy machine to decide what to buy. Now, he doesn't know he's being videotaped. He's standing in front of the machine, he can't decide what to get. Now, while he's waiting and trying to decide what he wants, one of the secretaries from one of the college offices comes and stands behind him. Now, he can't decide what he wants. What's his social contract? What should he do? What would you do? She would step aside and say, why don't you go first? No way, no way. He's standing there. He can't decide. She's standing behind him. She's sending him all these body language signals. She's shifting her weight. She's folding her arms. She's heaving heavy sighs, sending all these paralinguistic signals to him. He's not picking up on any of them. Takes about two minutes to decide what he wants. Now he's decided what candy he wants, and he begins the search for the money. Okay? Now he's searching for the money. She's standing behind her again, folding, tapping her foot, sending all these signals he's not getting. He finally gets the money. Now it's another minute or two of quiet contemplation. Is that what he really wants? Drops the money in the machine. Another 30 seconds of contemplation. Presses the button. The candy comes out. He opens the candy in front of the machine and starts eating it in front of the machine. At this point, the woman goes, oh, and storms away. The sad part of that story is I'm sure that secretary went back to her office and said, I just saw the most obnoxious self-centered kid. He's none of the above. He's a great, great kid. He just doesn't get it. He doesn't understand the social contracts. So because the kids have these definable, observable social skill problems, the timing and staging and the paralinguistics, that transfers to an inability to follow social contracts. And the inability to follow social contracts turns into a problem with reputation. Mel Levine says that the greatest challenge for children today is what he calls reputation management, managing their reputation. And many kids who don't have friends don't have friends for the simple reason that they don't have a good reputation amongst their peers. Now, adults and children view reputation very differently. Forget everything you think about reputation when you start thinking about kids. Because, you see, adults take what we call a situational view of reputation. In other words, I might say, I really like Jim. He's a great guy. But I don't like playing golf with him because he cheats when he plays golf and he's a real hothead. In other words, I can say that some things I like about this guy and some things I don't. I really like Russ. He's really friendly, but he never picks up a check, so I never go out, uh, go out uh, for a meal with him because he never picks up a check. In other words, there's some things I like about him, some things I don't. We take a situational view of a person's reputation, not kids. They take what we call a dispositional view. In other words, if I don't like you, I don't like anything about you. And no matter what you do, you can't make me happy. And if I don't like, if Laurie's a... A child, and I'm a child, and we don't like each other, and Laurie says, why don't you come over to my house? I'm automatically going to assume she's got something planned. She's going to have other kids there making fun of me. I can't imagine that there's anything good about Laurie at all. The other thing about reputations is this. Think about it. You could probably right now name five, six, or seven people in your life, adults, who you really like, but you didn't like at all when you first met them. We can change our minds about people. uh, Reputations aren't permanent in adulthood. They are permanent in childhood. Permanent in childhood. I've been being with my son. He was about 17 years old. We're walking down a street in our community I'm with my son, Christian, and this other boy comes walking our way, a kid from our neighborhood. He's Christian's age. He's in his grade. And the boy walked by, and he said, Hello, Mr. Lavoie. And I said, Hi, Scott, how are you? But very pointedly, Christian didn't talk to Scott, and Scott didn't talk to Christian. And I said, Christian, why didn't you say hi to Scott? He's in your class. Why did not you say hi to him? I hate Scott. I said, why? He stole my lunch once. I said, when? Second grade. <laughs> I said, what's the statute of limitations on a bologna and cheese here? But basically, those kids didn't like each other from something that happened in second grade. Reputations are permanent. And the problem is kids with poor social skills, because they don't follow the social contracts, they develop reputations, and they become like pariah. Nobody wants to be a part of that kid's life. Let me give you a little quick advice. And the first one's going to sound a little bit strange. If you're a mom or a dad, and you've got a kid who's got poor social skills and has a poor poor reputation in town, he's viewed as a loser by the other kids, and he wants to join Boy Scouts, and you know it's going to be a disaster because as soon as he walks into that Boy Scout meeting, the kids are going to start. You know what I recommend? Sounds a little bit strange. Sign him up for Boy Scouts in the next town. Take him to the next town. The kids there don't know him. All they know is he's a 13-year-old kid and he's pretty well socialized. Now they don't remember the things he did in first, second, and third grade. Take him to another town. And for those of us who are teachers, I think one of the most important concepts that we can understand as teachers, particularly those of us who teach in community schools, we need to understand and remember this. If you're a fifth-grade teacher, those kids in your class are a family. They've been together for five years before they met you, and they're going to be together for five years after you leave. Those kids have been punished for what, Michael, for what Michael has done wrong for five years. For five years, they've heard, we can't go to recess today because Michael made so much noise in the auditorium. Those kids have been punished for five years with what, for what Michael did wrong, using what we call collective punishments. How about being that one special teacher who uses collective rewards, who says, you know what? Michael did a great job in his homework class, and I'm so happy about that. We're going to put the math books away for a few minutes. We're going to watch that video of the World Series that you wanted to see. And actually reward the kid when Michael does something right. After five years of the kids being punished when Michael makes a mistake, how about rewarding him when Michael does something right? It can completely change the dynamic of that classroom. What can we do about this? How these kids? Well, the latest research indicates this. We don't even use the, the phrase social skills very often. We use the phrase social competence. Social competence is a combination of two things, social skills and social information. And one of the most important things you can do as a parent or a teacher is to increase your child's social information. I'm a college-educated adult. Because I'm an adult, I have about a billion and a half pieces of information in my brain, a billion and a half pieces of information. I know who plays third base for the Red Sox. I know my mother's maiden name. I know my Social Security number. That's all information that I have. Much of the information I have is what's called social information. For example, if I'm driving down the street and I see a flag at half staff in a community, what does that mean? I know what that means. What does it mean? Right. Somebody's died. If I check into a hotel and the hotel clerk gives me my key and says, Mr. LaVoy, you're in room 583, do I need to ask what floor that room is on? No because it's on the fifth floor. The number is 583. If I get home for, from this shoot today and I get into my house, it's very late at night and I'm hungry and I notice that one of my kids left their lunch out in the kitchen table. I don't know how long it's been there. Could have been there for a day, two days. I don't know how long it's been there. I open it up. There's a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and there's a, uh, a tuna fish sa- salad sandwich with mayonnaise. Which sandwich am I going to eat? The peanut butter and jelly. Because I know that mayonnaise can go bad and can make you sick. You and I know that a flag at half staff means someone died. You and I know that the first number in a hotel room is the the floor that that room is on. You and I know that mayonnaise goes bad. We all know that stuff, and yet I bet you can't remember who taught you that stuff. You can't remember who taught you that stuff. It's just social information that we have, and what we're finding is one of the reasons our kids are socially incompetent is they don't have that information, so give it to them. I advise parents don't look at waiting time as wasted time. You're standing in line at the supermarket with your child who has a social problem, and you're waiting to get to have your food checked out. Use that as, don't use don't view that as wasted time. View it as valuable time to teach them something. Look at that man over there, John. You see that, that, that symbol he's got on his sweatshirt? That means that's fire department. That means there's on the fire department. And you see that sign over there where it says a shopping cart with a big circle and a red line through it? That means no shopping carts, John. Anytime you see that symbol, it means it's forbidding or prohibiting something. Use every moment to teach these kids things. It's like taking a handful of darts and throwing them at a wall and hoping that several of them stick. Just bombarding them with social information. I also recommend you encourage these kids to have hobbies, hobbies and collections so that they can have what Bob Brooks calls islands of competence, something that they do well, something that they're expert in. And I also recommend sports for these kids, but I have a different recommendation for kids with social skill problems, and that is this. Don't emphasize team sports. Think about it. As adults, as adults, when was the last time you played organized baseball and basketball? You see, children with social skill problems will probably become adults with social skill problems. And the best thing you can do for your child is to teach them how to play sports like bowling, golf, swimming. So when they become adults and they're in the workplace, they can join the golf tournament at work. They can join the bowling club at work. They can be on the bowling team and use that as a social entree. You need to talk to the kids about their social problems. Many times they're embarrassed to talk about it, and it's difficult to get them to talk about it. Let me give you some advice in terms of talking to kids with special needs. Listen to when we, to- listen to when we talk to kids with special needs. The child comes home from school. The last thing he wants to do is talk about school. He wants to get a, sk- a skateboard and go outside and play, and mom and dad are following him around the house. How was school today? What did you do in school? The last thing he wants to talk about in school, he wants to go play. My advice is talk to him at bedtime. He doesn't want to go to bed. You know, he goes to bed, at, his bedtime is 9 o'clock, 5 minutes and 9, and you say, hey, why don't we talk about school today? What happened in school today? He'll tell you stuff you don't want to hear because he doesn't want to go to bed. And one key to talking to kids with language problems is this. Very interestingly, let's assume that Laura has, has good um, language skills, has adult language skills. If I ask her a specific question, she's going to give me a specific answer. If if I ask her a general question, she's going to give me a general answer. If I ask her, who did you vote for in the last election, a very specific question, she's going to give me a very specific answer. She'll name the candidate. If I say, what did you think of the last election, a global question, she'll give me a global answer. Specific question, you get a specific answer. Global question, global answer. Just the other way around for kids with language problems. You ask them a specific question, you get a general answer. General question, specific answer. How was school today? Good. How was your third period of biology class? Oh, it was pretty neat. We dissected a frog. I never did that before. The more specific the question, the bigger the answer you're going to get. Very important to remember when you talk to kids. When you talk to kids about their social skill problems, be reflective. That means a child says, everybody at school hates me. They're all picking on me. You reflect back what he said. It sounds like you're not very happy with the kids in the school bus. Avoid scolding him. It's already embarrassing enough for him. Be supportive of him. And I recommend what I call social war stories. I remember a child saying to me one time, I'd never talk to my mom and dad about the problems I have socially. They've got a million friends. They have no idea what it's like to have no friends. All of us have been rejected and isolated at some time. Use those war stories with your kid. Sit down and say, what's happening to you reminds me of something that happened to me when I was in high school. Some other things that we can do, um, one is focus corrections. Those of you who teach in the language arts, you know what focus corrections are. It's a very effective technique we use in teaching writing, for instance where we say to a child who has tremendous writing problems, what I want you to do today, Bill, is I want you to write a composition and I'm only going to correct the punctuation. I'm just going to focus on punctuation. I'm not going to correct anything else, not the capitalization or anything else. I'm just going to focus on punctuation. What we find in the research is not only does the child's punctuation improve, but the capitalization and spelling and everything improves because the kid is focusing. And when the kid does his passes in his paper, all you do is correct the punctuation and you ignore the other mistakes. I thought about focus corrections in a social situation. I was sitting in an airport snack bar one time having having a little lunch before I caught a plane and this young mother and her eight-year-old son came in and sat behind me and they started and from the moment they sat down the mother criticized everything this kid did don't talk with your mouth full hold your fork correctly put your napkin in your lap she what a miserable dining experience for them and frankly for everybody else in the diner she nailed that kid on every single mistake he made and I thought to myself, you know, someday this kid is going to file for divorce from her and I will, I will testify on his behalf because it was such such a horrible dining experience. And I thought, what if she focused? What if she sat down and said, Bill, let's have a nice meal together and know what I'm going to focus on while we're, uh, socially. We're going to talk about the way you hold your fork. We're going to let everything else go, but let's focus on the way you hold your fork. We've done that with kids and we find that all the social skills improve. If you're going to work with kids... In a social, you want to teach a kid how to act in a social environment, take him to that social environment. You want to teach him how to eat in a restaurant, take him to a restaurant. Our kids learn in natural settings. You want to teach him how to stand in line, take him to the bank and stand in line. Or take him to the Registry of Motor Vehicles, he will get a master's degree in standing in line. But basically, you, you, they let, need to learn things in real life, real life experiences. I remember we had a group of kids who were misbehaving on the bus. And so I said, you know, I'm going to teach them bus behavior. So I brought them into my office and talked to them about bus behavior. Made no change in the behavior at all. So I'm a pretty smart guy. The next day, I took a bunch of chairs and set them up in my office so it looked like a bus. And I had them sit in the chairs, and we did talk about bus behavior. Made no change at all. Finally, it came to me. I called the bus company. I said, could you drop a bus off in the parking lot? We did the bus courtesy lesson on the bus. They got it. They need need to learn in natural environments. And I recommend from Arnold Goldstein's work in Syracuse University what we call social homework. When you're working on a social skill with a kid, you're working on the social skill of standing in line, and you teach them how to stand in line, then you give them social homework. And you say, sometime this week, Billy, I want you to stand in line, and I want you to use these skills and report back to me in terms of how you did. But probably the most important thing we can do for these kids is teach them what a friend is. Many times they have no idea what a friend is. I remember working with a kid one time. He was applying to our school, and he was sitting in front of me, and his mother was sitting behind him. And I was interviewing the boy. He was about 10 years old. And I said, do you have a lot of friends at school, Mac? Do you have a lot of friends? Oh, yeah, I've got a lot of friends. I said, how many friends have you got in your class? He said, I've got seven friends in my class. And his mother's sitting behind him, and she's shaking her head no. And I said, who are your friends? And he very quickly named the seven kids in his class who were his friends. And I said, why are they your friends, Mac? What makes them your friends? He said, they're the kids who don't pick on me. In other words, in this kid's life, there are two kinds of kids in the world. The kids who pick on him and the kids who were his friends. They weren't his friends. There was no reciprocity. They never invited him anyplace. But by virtue of the fact they didn't pick on him, he considered them his friends. You need to teach kids what a friend is because our kids can be vulnerable to kids using them because they don't know what a friend is. And ask the child these three or four questions. If you think Billy's your friend, does he pass this test? Is he something like me? Is he something like you? Is he similar to you? Does he make you feel good? Or does he make fun of you and give you a hard time? Can you trust him? Is he fun? Does he help you meet your social goals? If the answers to that are yes, then he's probably a friend. If not, he probably isn't. And so you need to teach our kids what a friend is. The coin of the realm, the coin of the realm in the social lives of many kids today are play dates. The day of go outside and play are gone. Now it's play dates, arranged play dates, and they can be disasters for kids with special needs. If you're a mom or a dad who have a child with special needs and social problems, let me give you some hints in terms of how to put together play dates. First of all, play dates are very, very difficult for our kids, and I'll tell you why. They view their home as their refuge. That's their castle. That's the only place they go where they can be in charge. They're picked on and bullied in the schoolyard. They're picked on and bullied in the hallway. They're picked on and bullied at the Boy Scout meeting. And the only place they've got where they feel safe, their castle is home. So when they bring a guest into their home, they assume, the child assumes, I'm in charge. We're going to play what I want to play because we're going to use the toys I want to use. I'm going to get the toys to play with because this is my castle. And, of course, we as adults understand when a guest comes over, the dynamic is just the opposite. The guest is always right. You have to bow to the guest needs and the guest desires. And that's a very difficult thing for our kids to understand, that when a guest comes into the house, it's your job as the host to keep the guest happy. So one thing I recommend is maybe the first couple of play dates you don't have at home. You have the child dropped off at your home, and then you take your child and the other child to the park or to the playground to play. Now, some things you can do before the play date. First of all, only invite one child. If you invite two kids, then that makes three. And guess who's going to be the odd man out? The odd man out is going to be your child who has social skill problems. Always keep it one on one, only invite one child. Establish with your child the house rules. You say, you know, you guys can, when Billy comes over, you're going to have a good time playing, but you can't go into the shed because that's where Grandpa keeps his tools. That's the house rule. That way, when Billy comes over and says to your son, let's go play in the shed, your son can say, no, we can't. That's the house rule. That's where my grandpa keeps his tools. So it's going to cut down on the conflict. Another thing you can do, I strongly recommend, no siblings. Tell the siblings that when the special needs child has a friend over, the sibling needs to make himself scarce because the sibling will become a more attractive Social partner than the special needs child, and one more time, you'll find your child with poor social skills on the outside looking in. If you're going to invite someone, invite someone of different ages. We're going to have a little reception after this, and I'm not going to walk around the room and say to everybody, "Excuse me, how old are you? I can only talk to people my age." I mean, some of my best friends are 20 or 30 years younger than me. Some of my better friends are 10 or 12 years older than me. In adulthood, we don't delineate by age. We don't ask someone how old they are before we become friends with them. And yet, in childhood, we say, oh, no, eight-year-olds should hang out with eight-year-olds and nine-year-olds with nine-year-olds. No, if your 10-year-old has made friends with an eight-year-old, there's nothing wrong with that. It gives your 10-year-old instant instant status, the status he doesn't have when he hangs out with other 10-year-olds. When the spread spread gets to be three, four, five years, of course, you've got a problem, but a couple years difference, I don't think there's any trouble with that. You're having a guest at your home. Prepare for that guest. And require your child to prepare for that guest. For that guest, the child should be required to make preparation for the guest. John, you're having a friend over, and you're going to want to play in the, out in the basketball court. But Dad's got his uh, the grill out in the basketball court. You're going to have to move that and get ready. It's your job as a host to prepare for your guest. And if your child has a toy, say, a a model plane that he's very sensitive about, he doesn't want broken, and he goes a little bit crazy when anybody goes near it, why don't you take some proactive action, take that toy and put it away so there won't be a skirmish with the guests about touching it. And with younger kids, I recommend duplicate toys. Get two dump trucks, two steam shovels, two bulldozers, so each kid has their own toy and there are no skirmishes about it. During the play visit, during the play date, remember, the child is the host. The child should meet the child at the door. The child should meet his guest at the door. The child should take his guest around and introduce him to the, to the members of the family. During the play date, I suggest you begin with a structured activity. Have some pipe cleaners out or something where you say, before you guys get, when the, the guest comes, let's sit down, play with the pipe cleaners for a while, hover around a little bit for the first ten minutes of play date in a structured activity, then you can step back a little bit, have a snack, I call that the American foreign policy approach to friendship. You know, if I give you something, will you be my friend? You know, basically, I have a snack for them. And here's an important thing to remember. Kids tend to remember the last 15 minutes of any experience. So even if the play date was a disaster, make sure the last 15 minutes is fun. And if the last 15 minutes are fun, The child, the guest will remember, I had a good time when I went over a plate at Billy's. So maybe you have the snack at the end or a little video at the end, something the kids are going to enjoy, and they're more likely to remember that as being a positive experience. When the play date is completed, there's some things you want to do. Do a post-mortem on the play date. Sit down with your son or your daughter and say, you know, what went right during the play date? What went wrong? What could you have done? What should you have done? What options did you have? You and John got quite an argument about that toy. What options could you have done next time? How are you going to handle it? And another thing I recommend is that a child should have several home play dates first before you send him out to have a play date at someone else's home. He's going to be more comfortable having a play date at home before he goes out and has a play date outside. The bottom line is play dates in American culture today, they're the coin of the realm for the social acceptance of these kids. <laughs> Social acceptance and friendship skills are two of the most important aspects of childhood. As I said earlier, Mel Levine said that reputation management is the number one job of a child. I want you to consider for a moment four ancient societies that are very different from each other. The Aborigines from Australia, the Amish from Pennsylvania, the ancient Romans from Italy, and the Lakota Sioux from the Midwest. Those are four very different cultures. And yet, interestingly, those four cultures had two things in common. They didn't believe in execution. They didn't believe in capital punishment. None of those communities did. None of those cultures did. And so this is how they punished someone for a serious crime. If you committed a very serious crime in your community, you were sentenced to banishment Banishment meant you had to live in the outskirts of the community. You couldn't live in the community. You couldn't participate in community activities. You you and your family had to live on the outskirts of the community. Now, if you were attacked by an enemy, the community would come and help you. But you were expected to live there by yourself, and you couldn't interact with the community. That was for a very serious crime. That was a punishment for a serious crime. However, if it was an extraordinarily serious crime, an even more serious crime, The punishment was what was called shunning. And in shunning, you were required to live in the community. You had to stay in the community. You had to go to community events. But no one could talk to you, and you couldn't talk to anyone else. And they felt that was a more severe punishment, to require someone to live in the community and yet to be ignored by the other members of the community. They thought that, in their ancient wisdom, they thought that was a more severe punishment than banishment. The worst thing you can do to someone for a crime. In fact, in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, the Supreme Court brought charges against an Amish community because they said that shunning, having someone live in a community and ignore them, was cruel, unusual punishment under the United States Constitution. It's about the worst thing you can do to another human being, and yet we have kids in school who are shunned every day. Who are in the community, but no one communicates with them. No one corresponds with them. It's about the worst thing you can do to a human being. A friend of mine was working with a panel of young adolescents, kids with special needs, and he asked the magic wand question. He said, what if I gave you a magic wand, the 12 of you, and you could use that magic wand and you could use it to either get rid of all your academic problems and you do better in school or get rid of all your social problems and you'd have more friends. Which would you choose? All 12 said the social problems. All 12 chose the social problems. Now, for those of us who have friends, for those of us who cherish our friends, it's very difficult to understand what it's like to not have friends. The great American author Steinbeck said, There are those of us who live in rooms of experience that the rest of us will never enter. Many of you have no idea what it's like to not have friends. I had a friend of mine who said, I want to work with adolescents, Rick. What books should I read? And I said, there's a lot of books you should read, but first you should go find an old album, an old record album from 1967 by Janice Ian, and listen to the song At 17. And in that song, she says, for those of us who knew the pain, of Valentine's it never came, and those whose names were never called when choosing sides for basketball. That's the lives of our kids. It's not enough to understand that and be empathetic. We also have to be empowered and realize we can change that with kids. We can teach kids social skills. I talked to you earlier about Lindsay. Lindsay was the girl who got put in the wastebasket when she was in the fifth grade. She was also the girl who misinterpreted that videotape about the soap operas. And she attended our program. She was in our program for several years. And then she moved on when she was a freshman in high school. Her parents moved and she moved on. And I didn't hear from her for three or four years. And one Saturday afternoon I came home and I switched on the answering machine and it was Lindsay's voice. And she said, Mr. Lavoy, I'm going to the prom tonight. I just wanted you to know. It can work. We can improve these kids' social skills. There's an old Japanese proverb that says, the greatest gift that one human being can give to another is the gift of Friendship. Maybe for these kids, the greatest gift we can give them is friendship skills. Thank you very much. Thank you.